Welcome to the She Wore Black podcast. I'm Agatha Andrews. Today, I'm thrilled to have Diana Biller back on the show, and I'm so thankful she stuck through a second recording after a tornado disconnected us mid-recording the first time around. You might remember my popular previous episode with her about the craft of writing gothic romance, and she is back today to discuss her new historical romance novel, Hotel of Secrets, a book that feels like it was dipped in honey and champagne. We had a great time, as you'll hear from all of our laughter, and I had a wonderful time reading her book, which you can find in my online bookshop. Every purchase you make using my link helps both the podcast as well as independent bookstores nationwide. That's at bookshop.org slash shop slash she wore black. You can also help out the show by following me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and leaving me a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me today. Now on to the show. Diana Biller, let's go in for round two. (laughs) Uh, I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) To listeners, uh, I apologize that you're not going to get the original incarnation of this recording, but we had tornadoes passing by my window. And I just really want it to be on the record that I, I told Agatha. I asked her specifically twice if she wanted to go and find shelter. So I just want all your (laughs) listeners to understand that one half of this interview took those tornado warnings seriously. My kid's safe. I'm good. (laughs) The show must go on. The show does have to go on. That's true. I appreciate that you were willing to cut me some slack, but... (laughs) I, this, that's how much I like this book. I want to talk about this book. (laughs) Now that's a good compliment. (laughs) Ma'am, I stayed up nights just like devouring this book and my child knew to close my door so I could read in peace (laughs) because I was so absorbed in it. It is beautiful and gorgeous. And this cover is to die for. And you had oh. done me the service of telling me about the woman who does. Yeah. Your- and I would just love to talk about it again. That is Carrie Resnick, um, who also did the design for the widow of Rose house. And I really, I, obviously I'm biased, but I just think she's one of the most talented people like in the business. And she has this knack of really finding like the spirit of the book I don't know if other authors kind of have this, but I kind of have a collage in my brain um, about what I kind of, the, the, the vibes, you know, like what I kind of want. Oh, yeah. People put those together on Canva, you know. Yeah. Oh, my God. So talented. Some of those people do. <laughs> some of those moveboards so I kind of always have a really hazy one in my head um, that's colors and little bits of music and, you know, even some textures. And Carrie Resnick just has this uncanny ability to reach inside my brain yeah. and take that collage and turn it into this, these beautiful covers. Widow is iconic. Everyone knows that, that when they see it. Piece- that key when I saw that key on the cover of widow I just about lost my mind hard agree and this cover, this cover like it came I wasn't expecting it I wasn't expecting anything really and I opened it and I just gasped it's so beautiful there are details in it I can't believe the sparkles like you don't they're not tangible sparkles because I feel like they are <laughs> I know I know <laughs> so good so good. it's this rich honey color it's everything and the thing of it is is that as beautiful and rich as it is it it is exactly how your book reads your book reads oh, with this rich light and color and it reads like a painting and you know before I I pick your brain about all the aesthetics because my god the aesthetics are gorgeous why don't you tell our listeners again <laughs> what this book is about yes of course um so this book is set in 
Vienna in 1878, and it is the story of an American treasury agent who is sent against his will over to Vienna at the height of the Habsburg Empire um, to solve a case involving the theft of American codes. And along the way, he becomes entangled with um, a beautiful and slightly chaotic hotelkeeper named Maria and her even more chaotic um, and sometimes totally Looney Tunes family um, and kind of is just swept up into the chaos and the magic and the danger of Vienna's ball season. Um, that is what the book is about. Well, aside from the fun uh, spy who's not a spy and the spy who is a spy and the fantastic characters in this book, I do want to first talk about the way the aesthetics of it, because that is one of the strongest things you have a, as a common thread in your novels. You know, you have beautiful cities in each of your books. Widow was in New York, you know, Gilded Age, Gilded Age in New York. You have, um, you know, uh, The Brightest Star in Paris during the Belle Epoque. You have Vienna, you know, in late 19th century. And it's as much a character, your settings, as the people that house them. And I know we've talked about paintings before, but can you talk about whatever inspiration they may have on your novel? Because you and I love to talk, talk about art history and I know it's in here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think art is such a part of every one of my books. Um, I think it's probably like the most obvious in Brightest Star because we literally have like an impressionist painter wandering around. Um, but every one of my books is so firmly tied to the art that people of the time were excited about or that was controversial or, you know, the art that they were talking about. Um, and so I thought about like the Hudson Valley School when I was writing Widow. And obviously I thought about the Impressionists um, when I was writing The Brightest Star in Paris. And, you know, when I was looking into... 19th century Vienna it was such a time um it was such a time it was the golden age of assassinations and oh, suicide <laughs> isn't that wonderful that's not my coinage that's not my phrase um it was uh, suicides were terrible terribly on the rise suicide it was a terrible time for suicides in Vienna um there were all these sensational waltzes that we still dance to today and the art, and I don't just mean the paintings, but um, what people were wearing and how they were decorating their houses were so rich and bold um, and luscious. And that even in the avant-garde art, um, of which there was a lot at the time in Vienna, um, there's something so sensual, almost in a way that you can taste, uh, when you're looking at it, um, these colors are so rich and bold and the golds, the golds alone, there should be a, a book that is just called something like Viennese gold. Yes, <laughs> the I got the sense. Of gold. <laughs> like gold is not a good enough word. <laughs> have you ever seen, and I know he's a controversial figure, but have you ever seen a painting by Dante Gabriel Rossetti in person? No, I haven't. I don't think so. No. So we see prints, you know, you, you see reproductions and, and, huh? and things in books, but it, as you know, cause you're an art fan, it's never the same as when you see them in person. No, it's never the same at all. And when you see a Rossetti painting in person, you feel mm -hmm. like you are being um, showered with the color coming off the page. <gasps> and he's oh. got that one. I'll send it to you, but that I'm forgetting Please the name do. of it. But I, and I can't believe I, my art history degree was a long time ago, so I'm forgetting the name of the painting. But there's one I saw at the Tate where you know she's like looking up and the, there's rays of light showering her. And when you're standing in front of it, you feel like the yeah. that you're being showered in these rays of yeah. light. And that's yeah. I got that from this book. I felt like I was in the light. And there you you mentioned like food descriptions, and I'm like it. It's like honey and champagne together. Oh, that's you know? I 
You know, I'm so, I can't tell you how happy I am to hear you say that because really, I think I build this book uh, to my agent and my editor as a champagne book. Oh, yes. Uh, perfect. <laughs> I wanted, uh, yeah, and honey uh, is absolutely slow, slow, sticky gold. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and that's how I felt like they were moving because it felt like you're moving through the stream. It felt like a fantasy. And I know we we were kind of chatting a little bit about like the element of myth or fairy tale, but this very much felt like a fantasy without the fantasy if you know what I mean like without um any well I said without paranormal elements but we we did go back and go well maybe <laughs> yeah I you know I I do not feel inclined to say if this book is paranormal or not I um to me first of all I guess I want to say one thing I think is always true things it is a rule to me um, and I think it's a rule in fiction broadly, but I don't, I don't know. I think it's a rule that if a fortune teller says something in a book and the point of the book is not that they're wrong, right? So it's not about a fraudulent fortune teller. If a fortune teller says something in a book, it has to come true. That is my rule. Uh -huh. um, and this book has psychics in it and it has a curse. Um, and I think that you can read this book with those things being utterly true, yeah. um, I'm not sure that they're not. <laughs> uh, certainly they're true to some people right. in the book. Um, and Sarah McLean talk about that actually a little bit. Like if there's ever an omen or a, or a fortune mm -hmm. that's told, you know, trying to undo it, has, it is ridiculous. Because no. <laughs> <laughs> that's not how books work. <laughs> these silly characters <laughs> but yes no it I you're you're right but I and it's funny because when I was originally thinking about it you know Widow of Rose House has such and and actually Brightest Star in Paris has such definitive ghosts like playing important mm -hmm. roles mm -hmm. like they the ghosts are characters also so we didn't have ghosts per se but we did have elements of what felt like fantasy because it is but you know when you're looking at these paintings from the 19th century that's what it feels like yeah you know yeah. and I think you know when I remember when we were talking about Widow um we talked about how I think that Alva is the one living in a gothic novel yes and Sam is not yeah. um Sam is maybe living in a, a very nice romance novel um <laughs> um a very nice one. <laughs> a very nice one. <laughs> um, and then part of their conflict is having to negotiate kind of their different genres. I think that both Eli and Maria are living in a fairy tale, a fairy tale kind of fantasy. Um, I think to Maria, she lives in a world of psychics and grand balls and grand hotels and lead casting that will tell your fortune at the beginning of the year to him things that are uncertain around the edges like uh superstitions tend to be i think those are terrifying to him mm -hmm. um and so but i i think he too is living in a fantasy novel i just think it's a it it maybe is a scarier one he's definitely um, haunted He's definitely haunted. <laughs> what if Diana Biller book if someone wasn't haunted? <laughs> ah, the joy of a Biller. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, it was so much fun. We're laughing because your books are so much fun. Um, so let's talk about Maria. And and I what I really enjoyed was that each of your heroines and each of your books are not only independent women. But they are all in the process of rebuilding something that's that is not whole or they're saving. I mean, even when they're rebuilding, I mean, Alva in your first book comes from money, but she's still having to be very conscious about spending, not only because she's repairing a dilapidated building as a single woman, but she's also writing a book about it for the middle class. So she's trying to be 
conscious of those things. Um, you know, the the brightest star in Paris, you know, is a prima ballerina. So she's building this this fame and, and as much fortune as she can muster to build a future for her and her sister. And here we have, you know, a woman in charge of a hotel that has been passed down to her um, from generations. And but it's not in the best shape. And she has to build it and rebuild it and think about money and think about repairs. And, and so each of these women are nurturing, you know, something that needs to be rebuilt or nurturing something for, to secure a future. And so I just find it fascinating that this, this is like a common thread because not all romance novels have all kinds of heroines in them, but this is like a consistent thread in your novels. Yeah, well, sometimes going on your podcast is like going to therapy. Um. <laughs> well, I do what I can. I provide tornadoes and therapy. <laughs> Where's the margarita, though, Agatha? Oh, the fridge. <laughs> um, I think that there are a lot of reasons why that's true in my books. Um, one is my own my own background. Um. I grew up very, very poor, and a lot of my childhood was spent, uh, you know, kind of dreaming about a way out of that. Um, so I think there's kind of, I think that's just kind of in my, you know, creative code a little bit. Um, I also, I have a, a serious answer and then a serious but a little silly answer. Um, <laughs> the serious answer is um, that I genuinely think a lot about precarity um, and how very, very precarious historical women but um you know that's not simply a historical thing um i think about how very precarious so many women's lives were um and so what i want to give to my heroines and their happy ending is a place that is theirs or a thing that is theirs i want them to be able to do what they love and I want them to have the space to do that. Um, so Alva is at the end of the book able to be writing. She's able to be doing her job, which is making people's homes, like making homes for people. That's all she, that's so important to her. Um, Amelie has my favorite happy ending of all time, which is that she gets to start an avant-garde ballet company in the Hudson Valley. Love it. And choreograph. And I literally see her in my mind until she's well into her 80s, standing out there, you know, at the beginning of like really wild dance in America and being part of that. Um, and for Maria, you know, she has something to her. This book is partially about legacy and you know a gift that her great grandmother and grandmother have kind of given her is this hotel um which they have an imperial right to run from the emperor himself um so that is stability but she needs to protect it yeah. um and that's you know she needs to make sure that her future will have that stability in it um and i just think a lot about that because that is not about marrying a rich man no matter how much you love him you know and i do want that for some of my heroines obviously a rich man is nice um, but it's that's her it's a perk <laughs> but it's not something to build your life on right, right. Um, because he could uh, lose his fortune he, yeah he could lose his fortune um in alva's case her first husband turned out to be a monster um you know, so like, I want these women to be able to have these futures where they stand on their own feet and they want that too desperately. And they are willing to fight tooth and nail for it. And especially to create that for their loved ones. Um, what you're so good at though, is in, because, you know, you write, you write novels <laughs> is increasing the stakes by making it all very public. You know, mm -hmm. Alva's rebuilding her mansion. First of all, you know, she's written about in all the papers anyway, because, you know, scandal in, in the widow's past, right? That's what makes that gothic novel so delicious. <laughs> Scandalous widow even <laughs> is doing something that is ultimately meant to be 
about writing a book. And so like everything she's doing is already being written about. And then she's writing a book. And then everything Amelie does is in the public eye because mm. she is the star of the of the most famous ballet in Paris. Mm-hmm. And then Maria is in charge of a grand hotel that is famous in Vienna. Mm. So it's not even just a pretty building it's a famous one mm-hmm. um where like every woman who's owned it before her in her family is as famous as the place or as mm-hmm. or of any of the royals um so all of this is being done in the public eye and i find that fascinating i think i am a proponent of go big or go home <laughs> <laughs> we so... appreciate these stakes <laughs> all, all my heroines are larger than life um and I love that about them um I think there's something so interesting in watching a character manipulate uh the public and my heroines do that to differing degrees Alva's totally flooded I don't think she has any idea what to do she simply wants to hide um if the notoriety can get her a publishing contract then great but Amelie, of course, you know, has constructed this perfect mask, um, which eventually has to break um, because it's not sustainable. Maria, I think, is the most what we would call media savvy. Um, I think she has a a real idea of how to manipulate public opinion to ensure that she and her family um, can survive and survive well. and I admire that. Maria is a real, um, uh, she's a little indestructible, kind of an unsinkable Molly Brown kind of character. She's got great teachers, though. I mean, her grandma's still around, like, making amazing decisions. Like, her um, grandma's savvy. Her grandmother is, um, I love her so much. This crazy woman out here living her life exactly how she wants to live her life. Running yeah. around with who knows how many knives stored on her person <laughs> and guns. <laughs> like, and uh, I don't know what happened in this woman's past, but like shit went down. <laughs> like, I also you know. love the secret language of an eyebrow raise with someone that's the cue to fire <laughs> a weapon. <laughs> it's like it's amazing. <laughs> One thing I had so much fun with in this book is that um, I felt so much like there are so many different stories colliding. It was, it's like, it's not just one larger than life character here. Yeah. It's a dozen larger than life characters and they all come in with their own history and their own ridiculous drama. And they're just like a waltz, like spinning together dangerously on a dance floor. We're going to get into some of those characters because my (laughs) God, they're all fun. But before I leave this kind of idea, the other thing I love is that all of these women are doing it in very pretty places. So Gilded Age, New York, the Belle Epoque, France, you know, like in, in the Paris Opera Ballet and, you know, gorgeous Vienna, like, talk to me about this (laughs) talk to me about all the pretty pretty places my agent jokes with me my agent amy bishop um i the my my next book is set in in pasadena california um (laughs) for a totally different something totally different um and um, pasadena is a real pretty tourist friendly place it's lovely um and you know i remember getting on the phone with my agent and telling her you know, Pasadena is really a very dark place. You wouldn't believe the shit that's gone on there underneath the pretty surface. <laughs> and she said to me in the driest New York voice, <laughs> she said, Diana, you think every place has a terrible, it's terribly dark. <laughs> We've seen enough um, Robert De Niro movies. We know. <laughs> listen, <laughs> the, so I think one thing, I mean, first of all, I love beautiful things. Right. But there is something so juicy about the contrast um, of these beautiful, beautiful places. Some of these very scary things going on. Um, you know, thinking about Imperial Vienna, it's stunning. It was stunning. It is stunning. At the time, it was the grandest city in the world. Certainly, the grandest city in the Western world, yes. certainly, hands down. New York would have looked like a cow town in comparison to Vienna in 1878. 
And the dark side of that um, is that it was run under imperial power and or one of the dark sides of that. The dark side that's explored in this book is that it's run under imperial power and uh, you know what the empire what the emperor says on a personal level he had a lot of national headaches but on a personal level what the emperor says goes right and so one of the threads in this book is the deep concern that they've run afoul of the emperor's secret police who absolutely can simply banish them um anytime he wants to and I suppose I won't spoil, you know, what happens with the emperor's secret police, but, um, and who he is, but, um, uh, you know, so I think I just, I love thinking about the, the contrasts, yeah. I, you know, there's nothing I love more than a really high, like a high contrast contrast. <laughs> you know, no shade to Pasadena, but I was a hundred percent sure that the next Diana Biller would be like Venice or London, (laughs) (laughs) Petersburg, you know, (laughs) I'm, I'm a little surprised, but delighted. And I can't wait to know more. And now I'm like (laughs) building it up in my brain to what it could possibly be. (laughs) I don't think you'll get there. (laughs) Well, let's discuss the matriarchy, which we have touched on a bit because the matriarchy in Brightest Star in Paris was very powerful and important to that story too. But this one is interesting because there is a sense of myth that they use mm-hmm. and, and that manipulation you're talking about of what the public thinks and feels and fears. You know, they use it to play on like for their own safety. Like if mm-hmm. you in any way violate this thing about us, you know, you're it's bad for you. you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but they they also, as part of that safety and part of the myth, um, are devoted to things like the ritual of their journals mm-hmm. um, that may or may not say anything that feels relevant. It may be the most mundane thing, but turns out to be really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of the weight of the myth of those journals and the power that those journals have in the public's mind, they keep doing it. Um, so anyway, I'm just really fascinated by your matriarchies. I think um, in the case of the Volner matriarchy, um, I think that that idea of the fairy tale and kind of being legends, um, like it's about legends, but they they are legends. Um, and I, I guess I think that, um, you know, kind of a traumatic event was what began the Volner matriarchy. And I think that the the first you know woman in the in the book's lineage which is my heroine's great grandmother i think that she very quickly understood that she was the only protection that she was ever going to have um and i think that that evolved to the vulner women um are the only protection that the vulner women are ever going to have but damn it they're going to make sure they stay protected yes um and so they write these journals, which, um, you know, are an implicit blackmail threat um, to keep themselves safe. Um, and it works and it, it works for generations to keep themselves safe. Um, and, um, and I think, yeah, they have to kind of tend to their own legend. Um, and sometimes the legend is a burden, um, as it is for Maria in some ways. But I also think that there's something so interesting to me about exploring the different kinds of relationships that women can have between each other um both family relationships but like friend relationships too um there's and this book was so it gave me such a wide canvas to explore different kinds of relationships between women um you know there's her grandmother, who's this bold, fearless, adventurer type, um, morally gray, I think, certainly, but um, Maria loves her totally. Um, and then there's her mother, who is a flighty, self-obsessed, rather foolish woman who has been in love with the wrong man for 30 years and has dragged the hotel down kind of with 
with her and um Maria is so tired of having to clean up after her mother's messes but she also still loves her so much um and I really enjoyed seeing both Maria's sort of doneness happen Mm -hmm. you know she reaches this point where it's just like mom you can't you can't you can't keep acting like this but then she also gets to experience like the the more loving part too um and I so enjoyed that their relationship is not perfect and will never be perfect I didn't need to wrap it up into a happy ending it was a good enough ending and for a lot of people that's just kind of how those relationships are and I loved that this book gave me the freedom to have a relationship that you know wasn't perfect wasn't bad wasn't wasn't good just was I love how you know we talked earlier in our in our lost episode um about ah the legend of the lost episodes (laughs) yes indeed about how I can see your pedigree in your books and your pedigree meaning what you read and what you write and you were talking about the relationship with the mother and Marie like having to to kind of clean up the mess like like her mother was handed this grand hotel that was you know very well taken care of and after a few years like she just kind of let it fall apart because she was more absorbed in her own life um and then handed it off to her daughter maria who's now cleaning it up and trying to refurbish it that is very much like you know, we always see those, those dukes or, or, you know, that heroes that have to clean up the mess of their father's, you know, <laughs> generations, <laughs> generations. Oh my God. You're right. <laughs> yep. Generations of wealth lost to a father who doesn't know how to take care <sighs> of what he's inherited. Profligate <laughs> parents. <laughs> I'm good at this. You know I read your books when I can get down <laughs> nitty gritty. So tell us. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of funny. Like, you know, I just thought that was really interesting. Um, but she's so adept at it because she does have good teachers. She even learned what she didn't want to do from her mother she didn't want to mm-hmm. fall for a man in the yeah. same way. Like she yeah. had sexual relationships. She enjoyed them, but she didn't want to have love in the same way that her mother did because she wanted to live a different kind of life that involved repairing this hotel and securing well, a future. Was the hotel like yeah. that was, that was what she loved um, and her family. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hotel kind of is the physical representation of her family. And her family's legacy is important to her and she wants to preserve it. Um, and not just for her, but for future generations too. Um, and that is kind of her life's work. Um, and I think she would say that's an honor. Um, you know, is, does she feel that it's an honor when she's having to personally unplug the fourth floor toilet for the third time that evening? No. In a ball gown? <laughs> In a ball gown? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but one thing I love about Marina is uh, she is just going to do what it takes. Like, does she need to learn how to unclog a toilet, a, a, a 19th century toilet? Then she will. Does she need to learn how to repaint gilded stars on the ceiling of her ballroom then she will does she need to learn how to sew to have dresses remade she will um she's just utterly practical at the same time that she lives in this kind of fairy tale world um because she knows that the fairy tale world takes the practical work to create yeah um and uh, that's the honor to her as the honor of creating the fairy tale world. Let me just say she would have ruled Pinterest because she knew how to, um, and HGTV would have like probably made a show about her because she knew like Rachel Ashwell does with shabby chic, you know, how to take something and change it enough to, to make it beautiful or to serve a new purpose 
and it becomes something new be- because that's the only choice she had, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So she- she was that or let the family fade into nothing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I thought that was really, I was like, she would have ruled Pinterest. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh goodness. So let's talk about this hotel because I love that that's what she's in charge of. A lot of times when we're looking at historical romance, um, we are seeing women that um when they're in charge of housing, they're either in charge of a brothel, which you know, yay, um, or yeah, they're absolutely. a really yeah, I know I'm here for it. <laughs> or they're a really strict woman who's in charge of a women's boarding house. Um, you know, those women are never not strict. I mean, in every novel, they're very strict. Um, or maybe they're in charge of a small inn. And so she's in charge of a grand pink hotel, which is a building after my heart. <laughs> it's like, I'm here for the huge grand pink hotel. <laughs> go big or go home (laughs) that's right that's right um and so and you talked about how she was very hands-on in the running of it which I absolutely loved but I also love how and you know again we talked about this in the last episode but I feel like you gave her and this is where I could see your pedigree again you gave her the role that the heroes of Lisa Kleypas novels have. You know? <laughs> it's just the best compliment I've ever received. She's Sebastian, you know. <laughs> it's, really just the best. it's just the best compliment I've ever received. <laughs> I'm here for this, Diana. <laughs> One of my favorite romance novels. <laughs> oh, it's so good, though, um, isn't it? I think there is a bit of a gender reversal in this book um, that I was doing somewhat. I didn't do that consciously, but I'm just delighted to hear it. Um, But, you know, this is also a virgin. This is a virgin book. Um, Yes, you did that very well. Of course, it's a (laughs) virgin. And Maria's really been living this um, pretty, pretty content life with a because sleeping with whoever she wants you know um she's really been living the life of that um that 18 or 1800s bachelor uh that ends up in in romance novels and good for her i think she had a very nice time yes (laughs) that's why i'm like she's living the life of the hero in a claypus novel i'm here for it you know um and also she's got she's got her yeah, Deanna Rayborn oh. did that too. You know, with her, Veronica Speedwell is very Absolutely. like sexually mm-hmm. free and and smart and all and resourceful and all these things. I'm like, I mean, Deanna is just absolutely the you know <laughs> everything she writes is so wonderful. <laughs> I'm so lucky this month <laughs> that I get to chat oh, with both you of know, you. We were talking about this before, but Deanna Rayborn is. Um, probably like the author who put the widow of rose house on the map she is so gracious um she i like i will just never i will just never forget this like she um not only did she give the book a really beautiful blurb but she went out of her way to like put it in her newsletter and you know uh she's just like so gracious and lovely too um Anyway, my little Deanna Rayborn, you know, later, hopefully we'll get into my fangirling over Sherry Thomas and then we'll complete oh, sure. all the <laughs> that I love so much. That is but, very know, easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I dissolve into a blithering mess. Um, uh, one thing, though, that I was thinking was, um, you know, what else, where else I think my pedigree is showing is that what she also is, is a Nora Roberts heroine set in the past. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You know, like the most important, listen, in a Nora Roberts novel, two things are important, financial independence and a man. And financial independence is usually number one. <laughs> yes. But that's and true. I own those and yeah. I treasure that. Um, you know, that is the kind of heroine that 
I love so much. You know, her heroines are always out there starting businesses and running bookstores with their best friends and making something for nothing. That's true. I hadn't even, because it's contemporary, maybe I hadn't gone there, but it's completely true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very nice. And I see, I mean, it's, it, that goes back to the whole idea of it, how much, how important it can be to be a good writer, to be a good reader too. Um, there's been oh, some controversy about that, but I think it really does, even when you don't expect it to affect your writing, it does. Like you, when I told you the thing the first time about the Claypus, you're like, oh my gosh, I hadn't even thought about it, but I think it's in there, you know, and um, I think we even said that in reference to Suki St. James, <laughs> because she reminds me of your cook Hannah in this book. Um, that's a TV show, but how things can inspire you when you're not even thinking the, the thinking about it, you know? Well, of course, we all kind of like stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Isn't that the phrase? Like, um, like we all, um, you know, we all kind of are the, the product of the things that we've loved and read and hated. Yeah. Um, like, you know, in our life so far. Um, so like of course, like my books are in conversation with, you know, my most beloved yeah. um authors. Um, well, speaking of books in conversation, I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> I know you know the okay. moment. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, I'm fanning myself. <laughs> Because the last time we talked, I didn't even have to tell you, you knew that I was a winter make peace person. <laughs> we, we dropped the name Elizabeth Hoyt and you're like, let me guess. <laughs> let me guess. <laughs> a series chocked full of amazing heroes, but you knew the one that was after my own heart. <laughs> well, I think we shared that. <laughs> well I saw him in this novel <laughs> Eli mm -hmm. had many characteristics that reminded me of Winter Makepeace who is in the fourth Maiden Lane novel of uh, by Elizabeth White you have heard me talk listeners about Elizabeth White often enough and I will never have enough times that will suffice to talk about how much I love no. her <laughs> no no I, I I agree and we could do an entire episode that's just <laughs> But Elizabeth Hoyt book club. <laughs> if you want to, I'm here for it. <laughs> Let's because do a, I theme. Have a lot of things to say. <laughs> I'm sending you an email shortly after we're done here. Great. I, I am totally serious. I would love to get into the gin tax. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. I mean, I've done that before. Like Josh Mallerman has been on to talk about Anne Rice. Like I've had that before. So we can totally do yeah, that. No. But what about what about Sherry? Well, <laughs> for, for throwing we'll do a series. <laughs> we'll do a whole series. Um, um but yeah, yeah I thought um, Winter Make Peace and Eli because he's quiet, kind of brooding. Um, he's very duty bound. Um, he's a virgin hero, but despite being a virgin, they're very interested in doing it correctly and they're very smart and they like books matter and but they're also very observant of other people so they have street smarts as well as book smarts like there was a million different things about winter make peace that I saw in Eli which of course means I love Eli <laughs> you know and so <laughs> can we talk about this <laughs> mm -hmm. um you know I think my actual favorite thing about Eli that I don't know if ever, I, you know, I think it's a little under the surface, but my God, what a drama queen he is. Like, <laughs> this man can't do anything without having a fainting fit from it. <laughs> he goes through life being aghast, appalled. <laughs> But he he's and also I, like he's he's an A personality where he wants to get things right and that's kind of adorable. Oh, oh, there's no op there is no wrong like there's no option that exists. There is only the right way, and that's it. Period. There are no other options. Like this man learned Hungarian because he wanted to be minimally polite to his Hungarian neighbor. Um, and this is also a man who's capable of being breathtakingly rude if necessary. 
Um, but you know, he's upset that the State Department sends him over to Vienna without proper um preparation. And so he immediately finds himself a Polish tutor and some books on comparative religion. And that's just the right way to do things. <laughs> no compromising. Yeah. But he's also dashing. So then it's okay. <laughs> it just so happens that we agree with him that he's going yeah. about things the right way. <laughs> well, when it's, when he's going about things the right way, when it centers her safety, as well as her yeah. pleasure yeah, <laughs> because he cares about her pleasure as much as he cares about her safety. And I'm here for it. <laughs> I think what I also love about Eli is that the only the judge in his world is him. Mm-hmm. Like that he, he is the only person who's um, behave like that's the only person who gets to approve of his behavior, right. which means that he does what he thinks is right. A hundred percent of the time. And it's not super beholden to what society thought was right at the time because to him society is a little irrelevant he didn't really grow up in society yeah um he's kind of been forced to interact with it more drama queening um it's very upsetting sometimes you have to go to balls and then you have to sometimes people want you to dance and (laughs) it's awful Oh, but man, he's been shot again. Off he goes to his room to sew himself up. Well, listen, better shot again than having to dance another fucking waltz, okay? (laughs) I know too many people who would agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that you've given the whole, like, doesn't care what anybody thinks things in two different ways to two different characters because you also have claude who gives zero shits about what anybody thinks but he is having a blast listen my beautiful french spy <laughs> thank you for who giving us supposed a to be french spy <laughs> you know i'm not entirely sure that the beautiful french spy is not going to get his own novella maybe featuring people or persons like a person or persons from this book i'm not sure <sighs> I kind of have my own headcanon about what might happen. (laughs) Certainly, maybe not every book needs um, a a kind of magical French spy who just makes things happen mysteriously. But this book certainly did need him. Like there was this one scene where it's really at like the, you know, the, the, like we've reached the big action scene and the hero is tearing off to rescue the heroine. And he needs to have a carriage, so he's running out to the carriage stand to summon a carriage. And there's Claude, already having summoned the carriage. How did Claude know? I don't know, but he had the carriage ready. That's not my business to ask how Claude knew. He just did. (laughs) As Sarah McLean would say, for romance reasons. (laughs) Listen, I don't know, for Claude reasons. Yes, (laughs) exactly. But he he doesn't just do that, Diana. He does it like with champagne. (laughs) listen okay it's like you're assuming that providing a carriage to rescue a damsel in distress is more important than being able to pull a champagne bottle out of your coat at the right moment and that's where you're wrong and claude would tell you so he's also going to have a dirty book on him (laughs) like a book it's about being prepared He has a he has a glass of champagne and a very explicit <laughs> sex book, and he's just going to enjoy those things while he waits for you to get to the carriage. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> more of this, please. <laughs> I think my favorite thing about Claude is that he may or may not be able to fly. I'm not sure, but there is no hotel room in Vienna that Claude cannot access. I don't care how high it is; he will absolutely step through your window like an Aaron Flynn hero from a silent movie (laughs) looking very dashing and ready to have some champagne with you and he does actually just appear in people's rooms (laughs) I know so fun I'm like we need more clods in this world (laughs) we're so angry we need more clods more clods 
Um, but yes, the, but he is part of a very delightful cast. And I was going to say, you were very, very gifted at being able to create a supporting cast of characters that everyone wants to know a lot more about. How many times <laughs> have people asked you about the family <laughs> and widow? Like, we're like, we want Listen, all the things. Maggie's book is coming. I still promise it. <laughs> You promised that last time too. So, you know, I'm and just it's still on my schedule. <laughs> but remember, I've given you all these assignments of other books that you also have to write. They do stack up. Oh, but it's, well, it happens to me too. I write them and I'm like, oh, fuck. Now I've got to write a novella. <laughs> these assholes. <laughs> I promise you we're not drinking. Um, but... <laughs> A tornado <laughs> happened. I know. I'm still recovering. I have water. That's not quite the same. Um, but yeah, so you're you're that could that's also kind of a clapus thing too, though, to create a this and actually a Hoyt thing, going back to your pedigree. Women that are very, very gifted at giving us a cast of characters that we are as invested in as the main characters. So what do you do? In in this coming book, both um, Claude, our darling French spy, and Mac, my heroine's half-brother, did not exist before I started writing, um, which is actually unusual for me. Um, but they both just kind of... I, Mac literally did not exist from one pair like from one paragraph he didn't he didn't exist in one paragraph and then in the next paragraph he existed i've actually never had a character shoulder his way in so much and he ended up being very important not so much like the structural plot of the book but extraordinarily important to the themes of the book yeah um and so i i it's hard i can't imagine this book without mac or claude in it Claude, maybe he makes a little more sense because he's such a, a miracle man character. So of course, you know, he stepped into my book the way he steps into people's hotel rooms. Um, that's fine. <laughs> um, but, um, and he's not really a weight bearing character. That's kind of not Claude's point. Um, yeah. But Mac is a bit of a weight bearing character. Um, and it's so odd to me to think that he really wasn't in the plan. Um, but, you know, I love him so much. <laughs> So when you have Claude mysteriously appear or Mac mysteriously appear when you're writing, because I know that you mentioned that you are a very meticulous planner. Is this how or when you take a sledgehammer to your plan and start over? Like what, how does this work for you when they appear? You know, I think what happens is I really do. I meticulously plan. And then around the, just before the 50% mark, usually a big disaster happens and I have to rewrite uh 30,000 words or so um yeah it's not it's painful um so it's not so much that a character appearing throws everything off as much as by the time I get to around 45 percent of the way through the book so many things have started to appear you know Jenny Cruzy once said Jenny Cruzy who is another majorly important author to me um I bought I bought that book on your recommendation from last time oh, and I, so I started open I cracked it open and I'm like oh my gosh it's uh -huh. as charming as you said so just so y'all know it's maybe this time maybe this time um which is not one of her I think it's I don't think it's one of her more famous books um but I I, I talk about people who create casts Jenny Cruzy creates a cast, but she once said, and I talk about this all the time um, with my writing friends, but she has this quote, she, she has this phrase called the girls in the basement, referring to like her subconscious, you know, mm -hmm. um, and she says, you know, I'll, I'll send things down to the girls in the basement and they'll get back to me. Like they'll send some files back up, um, which is such a good description of what writing so is much. Right. So I think what happens is that that first meticulous plan is me sending the files down to the girls in the basement. And then I work on it and we work on it and they work on it for 45,000 words. Um, and then at for around 45,000 words, they've seen enough. 
um to tell me what the book is really about um and enough changes have been made enough max have shown up enough clods have shown up but also themes that i didn't really expect um have shown up and then i realized that i have to go back and redo 80 percent of everything um it's certainly one reason why i'll never be a very fast writer um because there's this massive reconstruction period <laughs> every time <laughs> But that's your process. Like, I don't, would you, mm-hmm. would it even that's feel normal if that, if that didn't happen? No, I, I, it, not even normal. It wouldn't feel right. I think I wouldn't trust it. You know, you know, that feeling when you're writing, when you've written the right thing, the true thing, not the right thing. You've written the true thing. Yeah. Um, And that I think goes down even to the, the true word just to put in a sentence. Um, But I think that if I did not, go through all the pain of that process I mean the reason I have to go through it is because suddenly I've realized that 80% of the book isn't actually true Mm. Um, so I have to go back and fix it and there's no like it's not like I can negotiate with that that's you know right like that's just how it is yeah no that makes sense but even even though you have these fantastical elements it still needs to be true yeah, it has to be true to me and what right. I, you know, there's a true, and I think you as a writer, you know, I think writers kind of have that intuitive sense of, is this the true thing yeah. or is this the thing that's almost there? Um, or sometimes I think we feel like the thing we're supposed to do, you know, I the think thing we that we're supposed to do. Yes, absolutely. I feel like that, yeah. I feel that one a lot, you know, and that's a struggle. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and it can start to feel so inauthentic. Um, well, so how do we arrive at authenticity? Give writers advice on that. If you don't mind. Oh God. Um, trusting yourself. That is so, that's something that's so important. I don't mean that as a platitude that we're going to put on, um, you know, a four by six sign over a door. Um, I mean that in, kind of a radical and egotistical way. I mean that your word is the only one that matters, Mm. Um, period. Not your beta readers. Uh, They're great. Yeah. But at the end of the day, your responsibility is to put the truth down on the page. And I don't mean truth like we're all writing nonfiction. I mean, what is true to your creative soul um, and I do feel so, I could, I, I feel so emphatic about that. I think that's where true art happens. Yeah. I think that gift that artists have, probably most people have actually, but that artists rely on, yeah. um, that sense of, is this right or not? Is this true or not? Is this the thing or not? Um, we, that's a gift mm-hmm. uh, and we have to rely on it. And what's true for you is not going to be true for someone else you know people talk a lot about voice right that's all voices um is your truth I feel like what we struggle with a lot and I don't know if you struggled with this because again I see your pedigree in here so I think as you as the girls in your basement have been good to you and that you know we see your inspiration but we also hear your voice like I love Isabel Gagne's novels like she the Hacienda was so important to me in a thousand different ways and I read it hasn't been out it's not going to come out till August but I just interviewed her and was able to read her new book early um and I love 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 her books but I'm not going to write an Isabel Gagne's novel mm-hmm. you know and I think sometimes people think we have to you know, when we, when we are fans of something or when we're trying to represent something or, or whatever, I think we just need to step back. I was also talking about this with Johnny Compton, just like step back and write what's mine. Like Vic Astro's novel, like I'm I'm referencing Texas Latinas, you know, because I'm one and it's like, I'm not, I'm not V <laughs> and I'm not Isabel. I'm me. And, and I, you know, it's a struggle, I think, for writers to remember that we can be fans without mm-hmm. having to be rep. Why would we replicate? You know, I think well, we feel we have to, that, but isn't that the gift? Isn't that the gift? And now it's a gift that publishing fights us on sometimes, but yeah. 
is isn't that the like isn't that wonderful mm-hmm. that there can be that there can be like this many yeah voices out there um yeah. isn't it wonderful actually that you can read the hacienda and love it so much and be changed by it yeah. and of course be in conversation with it and not have it have not be responsible for that at all like just be right. able to enjoy that like and be able to receive that gift from this person who is so infinitely talented um, and we're so good about seeing other people's talent I love uh, that you raised it that way that we receive that gift I love that that's perfect I've been in a very like um passionate about art phase honestly for about a year and a half um and I've been spending a lot of time thinking about it um and I just um, <clears throat> you know, I think sometimes as romance writers and sometimes as women, um, and there's a lot of other kinds of groups and identities that fall into this, we are not trained to take ourselves very seriously as artists. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trained perhaps to produce content. Yeah. Um, and we're trained to produce stuff, but I think we're sort of taught to think about it as filler. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, like kind of just grist for the mill. Like, oh, you know, uh, this major romance author has created this huge new market, so you can come in and fill it with some similar books. I know exactly um, what you're talking about. Yeah, and uh, you know, that's uh, we actually touched on this in our last conversation. You're so good at like make like you're such a you're so good at kind of talking about art and bringing out like these themes. Um, well, I think, like, we really have to knock that off. Yeah. Like, if it doesn't, no, it doesn't matter if anyone else takes us seriously. What matters the most is that we take ourselves seriously. Yeah. Um, and that we take our own voices and our own truth seriously. So that's my little hobby horse, and I'll get off it now. But no, because uh, I see your characters, you know, employing that same philosophy I mean we've talked about that a little bit even in this episode so I like that and I like thinking about that and sometimes we need that reminder so thank you for that reminder (laughs) you know because especially when we're always like you got to have comps you know like I feel like a lot of times we train ourselves for comps and things absolutely difficult to remind I think it's like you know all that stuff matters I'm not gonna say right that the forms of getting into publishing are not important because they are um, in terms of making money, which is deeply, deeply important to me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, that's afterwards. Right. You know, you, you write the thing. Right. uh, Or you, you do whatever, you, you know, you paint the thing, you do the thing that you, that is you, and then we'll figure out the marketing stuff afterwards. Um, And I think that people don't give themselves enough credit. I think writers, we live in a world of self-doubt so often, even Mm -hmm. when we've made it, even when people have made it, they still worry about it. So I guess we just need to accept that as part part for the course (laughs) and go, well, this is a state of things. (laughs) I want to give everyone like a blessing of a bigger ego. Uh, the wrong people have that ego too. Don't I know. I, I would like to do some um, some Robin Hood dis- redistribution yes. of ego in this society. Uh, and a more proper distribution. Yeah. <laughs> well, Diana Biller, you have graced us twice now with your wonderful words, your wonderful books. And I am looking forward to the book that we're, we haven't talked about yet that will be coming in sometime in the future. Um, but if people want to get sneak peeks of things like a short story or a novella, how do they find you and where do they sign up for your newsletter? The, the, the newsletter is probably the best way to be in contact with me right now. Um, it's dianabiller.com, Diana with one N. Um, and, um, that's the, certainly the most reliable way. I don't know what's happening with social media. More importantly, I have grown terrifically lazy around social media. 
but I care about my newsletter <laughs> um, because Elon Musk isn't going to do anything to that. That's right. So I think a lot of us are like, what do we do? It's not fun here anymore. It's, oh, it's just, you know, it's been uh, t- tedious. Um, and so, but I know, I know that the newsletter will be there. So sign up for the newsletter. I am on both Twitter and Instagram under DC Biller. Um, and Instagram is probably where I'm more active. Um, and that's why I'm posting more book news. Um, but uh, my newsletter subscribers will be getting um, uh, the epilogue to Hotel of Secrets um, sent uh, a few days after, I think maybe a week after publication. I can't remember when I scheduled it for, but um, sometime early in April, they'll be getting the epilogue. That's um, very Hotel exciting. Of Secrets. <laughs> that is very exciting and you have blessed us with these sorts of treats before uh with Widow of Rose House you gave us a prequel in your newsletter and um you know you it's y'all are gonna get some treats if you sign up for this one <laughs> and you said you'd only do it a few times a year so it's not like they're yeah, gonna get, well, you don't spam anybody so <laughs> you know the problem with the marketing is gonna come later a uh, problem is that I apply it to my own career <laughs> We gotcha. We got you covered because we're going to be talking about it. And this book is so beautiful. It will be instant, uh, you know, on Instagram and, you know, oh, we'll be God bless Carrie cover. Resnick. <laughs> <laughs> hey, covers matter. People, covers you know, matter. Own- People have no idea how much covers matter. I talk about this because it's so true. It's completely true. I tell people yeah. that it's there to talk for your book when your book, when you're not there to do it you know, when you're not there to speak for it. So, mm-hmm. well, thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for thank doing you so much for having me. What an exciting night we had. <laughs> Tornadoes <laughs> and yeah, I mean, you know, laughs, giggles, um, you know, and a charming <laughs> book to talk about. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you all. It comes out this month. So you guys get your pre-orders in and I will have the link on my bookshop also, if you want to help out the podcast and, you know, keep me and Diana informed of whatever y'all think of the novel. I already do have one fan who's commented, who's very eager to read Hotel of Secrets. Oh, She's been waiting. Yay. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on She Wore Black. If you like what you heard and want to support my work on the show, you can visit my website at sheworeblackpodcast.com for links to my Kofi donation site, as well as my online bookshop. You can also help out the show by rating me on Apple and Spotify and following me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook and letting your friends know about the show. Thanks so much for joining me today and happy reading. Thank you.